Well, we're going to turn to uh, 1 Kings chapter 13 uh, this evening. 1 Kings chapter 13. It's been a while since we looked at 1 Kings, so you may have to recap. We'll do a little bit of recap in a minute. But um, 1 Kings 13. And uh, <clears throat> what's happening here is that um, Jeroboam has... I wonder if somebody might just get me a glass of water. Um, <coughs> struggling a little bit. <coughs> um, Jeroboam is, has taken the ten tribes to the north, uh, away from Rehoboam in the south, and uh, this, this, the kingdom is split in two. And in order to promote social cohesion, is the modern term for it, I think, um, he institutes a new forms of worship, a new system of worship. At, uh, in Bethel and other places and creates these golden calves, thank you, uh, these golden calves that people can come as a focal point that they can come and worship. And of course it's idolatrous, as we'll see. Um, and it's as they're worshipping on Mount Beth, on Beth, at Bethel that uh, chapter 13 unfolds uh, before them. So let's uh, hear what's Uh, the book of Kings says and behold a man of God came out of Judah by the words of the Lord to Bethel Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said O altar, altar, thus says the Lord behold a son shall be born to the house of David Josiah by name and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and, the hum- and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave the sign the same day, saying, This is the sign the Lord has spoken, that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And then the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel. And Jeroboam stretched out his hand, from the altar saying seize him and his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so he could not draw it back to himself the altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. The man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. The man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go with you. And I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For for so it was commanded me by the words of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told, told, uh, also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. 
And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he, and he said, I may not return with you or go in with you, neither will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried to the man of God who had come from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God commanded you, and to have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road. And the donkey stood beside it, and the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told, told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the, way, uh, from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word, of the, word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body, nor nor torn the, the donkey. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God, and laid it on the donkey, and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him. Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his, to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses in the, of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places Again, from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Amen. Well, that's quite a story, isn't it? Quite a dramatic accounts 
of things, strange things happening. Um, but uh, we've, uh, so I just gave you a bit of an introduction to, to what's happening here. Um, this, the two kingdoms are split. There's the northern kingdom of Israel made up of ten tribes. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and uh, uh, the, two, the parting of the ways has happened. And Jeroboam is trying to keep the people together uh, by creating a system of worship that unites the people. And uh, that involves golden calves uh, being set in high places so that the people can have a place to gather so that they can worship instead of going off down to Jerusalem and being drawn back to the king of Jerusalem. And, and in order to make that stick, he institutes this, uh, not only these places of worship and these objects of worship, but he introduces a new uh, priesthood, uh, priesthood not of the tribe of Levi, any longer, but anybody who feels like it, it seems. Uh, Anybody who would, it says in verse 33. Um, And so he makes this priesthood. And so you have this system of religion that's kind of established, a kind of counterfeit system of religion that seems to mimic aspects of the Jerusalem, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, but is so fundamentally uh, flawed and corrupted. And uh, so he institutes this new religion, uh, I think, for political reasons. Now, it's, it's in, as they are worshipping at Bethel, one of these uh, uh, calves, and at the altar, and they're making sacrifices, it's at this point that chapter 13 begins. And it involves three characters, uh, three human characters. Um, Firstly, there's Jeroboam himself and uh, Jeroboam's response uh, to the second character who is the man of God. And so he's always referred to as the man of God all the way through this chapter. And then lastly, there's a third character, the old prophet. And uh, presumably he thinks of himself as a man of God, but as we'll see, there's some problems with him. Uh, So Jeroboam, the man of God, and the old prophets, so three characters. Now it's a story that's full of dramatic intrigue. It leaves many questions unanswered. You, you're, you're going through the story and you're thinking, why did that happen? Why has he done this? Why is he saying that? You know, and uh, the narrator doesn't tell us the answers to all of those kinds of questions. Um, and it takes many strange turns, the story. But the question for us is, what's it all about? Why, is, why are we being told all about this? At this point, what's the point for us? And for all the unanswered questions and all the strange loose ends that there are in this chapter, the one issue that is threaded throughout this chapter uh, is one that's so, it's probably so prominent that maybe you've missed it. You know, sometimes that happens, it's right in front of your face and you can't see it. And I say it's prominent. Because perhaps it's something that we would take for granted. What is that thing? Well, nine times the text refers to the Word of God. Several times it speaks of the Lord speaking and saying things. Several times it speaks of the Lord commanding. So the word of the Lord, the spoken 
instructions of the Lord, the commands of God are threaded all the way through this. And, and that's the issue for all of these three characters. Is what are you going to make of the word of God? What are you going to do with the things that God has said? So do you see it now? you see the central concern? That God's word needs to be paid attention to. So I want to use these three characters, Jeroboam, the man of God, and the old prophet, as reference points to think about how we respond to the word of God. And uh, as we do that, we'll, I pray and I hope that uh, we'll do some soul searching as we go through this, as we listen to it and respond to it. So first of all, the first issue centered around Jeroboam is to treat the word of God as disposable. To treat the word of God as disposable. And it's while all the people are gathered at Bethel, and Jeroboam is is presiding over these um, idolatrous offerings, that this man of God kind of barges his way into the front and starts speaking loudly against what's happening. He brings a prophetic word from the Lord about this altar that is being used for this idolatrous worship. And he says that these new priests that Jeroboam has appointed will themselves be sacrificed on the altar. Their bones will be sacrificed on the altar by a son called Josiah. A son of Jeroboam, that is. And it's actually going to take several generations for Josiah to appear. And you can actually read about it in 2 Kings chapter 23, where he literally, Josiah literally took the bones of the then dead prophets and burned them at the site of the altar to destroy the idolatry that had risen up in Israel as a result of Jeroboam's sins. And so he carried out, Josiah did indeed carry out everything that this man of God had prophesied. Now this, uh, I have no doubt that at the time, as Jeroboam's kind of just inaugurating his great system of religion now, you know, in his great time, you know, look at me everybody, um, this annoying man bursts forth and starts loudly proclaiming against this system. And so Jeroboam tries to have him arrested. And he points this accusing finger and says, seize him. And it's, isn't it embarrassing? As he's doing it, his arm gets stuck. <laughs> and he can't move it. And you think, what, what on earth's going on? My hand is paralyzed and dried up. And, you know, that's a pretty terrifying thing to happen to anybody. And at the same time as, he's do- as that happens to him, the altar is literally torn down. So God comes in great power. Something supernatural has happened. And the altar is torn down. 
all of it just as God had said. And it's at this point that Jeroboam turns to God. And he asks the man of God, he says, please pray for me that my arm might be restored. And amazingly, the prayer is answered pretty instantaneously. The man of God prays and treats God and suddenly his arm is back to where it was before. And then, without, no doubt, with a wave of relief, Jeroboam says, come back to my house and come back and I'll reward you with something. And the man of God's having nothing, none of it. He refuses anything from Jeroboam. He won't have anything to do with his idolatry and he won't be seen to be profiting from what's just happened. Well, what has just happened? Let's think a bit more about what's just happened. The first thing to say about this is that it was a judgment of God. This was a judgment of God for false religion, for idolatry, for failing to be faithful to the word of God. And I think with Jeroboam, it's all the more poignant for him because... You may remember that back in chapter 11 when another prophet comes to Jeroboam with this prophecy about the ten tribes being taken away and given to him. He's going to lead them. God comes with a conditional promise which you might want to look at in chapter 11 verse 38. And he says this, God says this, And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. See, such marvelous promises have been offered to Jeroboam if he would remain faithful to God. See, the whole plan to to split the kingdom was actually the Lord's plan. And Jeroboam could have done well out of it under the Lord's blessing. If he had remained faithful. And if he had paid attention to God's word. But he ignored it. He ignored God's word and he decided instead to institute a false system of religion. You know, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's hard to see into his heart, isn't it? You can't. But you can speculate just a little bit sometimes. You think, do, you know, is, would he say something like this? Well, we all worship the same God, so it doesn't matter what kind of paraphernalia you have around the worship of the same God. You know, I, you may have a temple in Jerusalem and we've got a few kind of statues to, to bow down to. And what does it matter? It's the same God, isn't it? Can I just get some brownie points for having done something? You know? It's a very common modern idea, isn't it? We all worship the same God, I keep hearing people say. Well, that won't work. God, this God, the God, the one true and living God, wants his people to be absolutely committed to him. In all he says, in every detail. God and his words have to be central to what we do and how we live. 
And so God comes to Jeroboam in judgment and power and truth and executes this judgment on the altar. But then there's another aspect of this story, this section of the story, because God comes in mercy as well. He's come in judgment, but he's come in mercy also. It's amazing how if you look hard enough, you'll always see when God comes in judgment or he threatens judgment, he always offers mercy as well. And here's an act of mercy on God's part by hearing the prayer of the man of God and restoring Jeroboam's arm back to full strength. And clearly the freezing of the arm was intended by God to be something to get Jeroboam's attention. And it succeeded for a moment at least. Got his attention such that he wanted to pray to God and turn to him. Now friends, there's an interesting lesson here I think about how God works and how we ought to respond. It seems to me that there are times when in our lives when God seems to permit some sort of disaster to happen to us. Some bad thing might come into our lives. And we have to see that as under the hand of God. God is a God of providence. God knows what he's doing from beginning to end. He's a God of uh, infinite wisdom. And he means it for our good. But sometimes these things come into our lives, don't they? And how are we supposed to read those events in our lives? What are we supposed to make of those events in our lives? You know, there are many Christians who I think um, often ask this question. You know, what, you know, in this bad situation, what is God saying to me in this situation? And I, I don't think it's a bad thing, question to ask, but one of the things I've noticed is that when people ask that question, they usually have a particular kind of answer that they're looking for. They're looking for the kind of answer that addresses some big decision in their life. What is God saying to me in this situation about my job? What is God saying to me in this situation about the relationships that I'm in? What is God saying to me about who I should marry or some other life event or what house I should live in or which part of the country I should go to? What is God saying to me about all these things? Bad things get my attention, then we start asking the question. But we are asking the questions about the big issues of life. Is that the purpose, though, of God's intervention here? Actually, the, the, the purpose is to draw Jeroboam's attention to his, the sin of idolatry. So what is God saying to Jeroboam? He's saying, stop sinning. Stop sinning. In this disaster that's happened to you, this event of judgment that has almost been catastrophic to you personally, think about your sin. Think about where you're going and neglecting God and his word. That gives us a clue about how we need to think about difficult circumstances in our lives. Perhaps when some disaster happens, it's not really about the big decisions in your life. It's maybe God is seeking to grab your attention. 
and say, what do you need to repent of? Because you're a sinner. There are plenty to repent of. And we should search our souls and examine ourselves in that light. Is that how you think about the hard events that come into your life? But we also see something about the way that Jeroboam responded. Um, for a moment at least, Jeroboam was very God conscious, wasn't he? Uh, Entreat your God that my arm might be restored to me. But if you look at the end of the chapter, you'll see how lasting that effect was. Verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn return from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among the people, and so on. In other words, he didn't change at all. Fundamentally, he didn't change. The crisis passed, and he went back to where he was before. Steeped in his idolatry and sin. Friends, I often come across people um, in my Christian experience, usually in an evangelistic setting, where the person who usually wants to convince me that they've got some sort of God consciousness or some sort of relationship to God. And they'll say something like this, you know, when I was really ill, or, um, you know, I cried out to God for help. Or when my relationships were really bad, I knew that God was there for me. And there seems to be that moment in a crisis when the person turns to God. For a few seconds at least. Except that those very same people are nowhere spiritually now. So for a moment, they're very God conscious in a crisis. And then when things get better, they're back to the way they were before. That's a challenge to us, isn't it? To think rightly about God and about a relationship to God. Friends, a sign of um, fidelity to God and knowledge of God and fellowship with God is not that you cry out simply that you just cry out to God in a crisis, but you're even faithful to Him when there's no crisis, when things are good. When things are great. In other words, you walk with him always, at all times, through the ups and the downs, through all circumstances of life. And in all of that, you care about his word, about his commands, and his instructions, and what you're supposed to be doing. So, Jeroboam treated the word of God as disposable. Here's the second section, 11 to 24 uh, and the, the headline here is how easy it is to abandon God's word easily how easy to abandon God's word easily, we're going to move on to the man of God now, think about the man of God and and so far, you know, we've seen so far in verses 1 to 10 uh, we've seen that he has been a, a faithful man uh, he has uh, brought an unpleasant and unwelcome message to the king. And he won't even receive a reward from the king as a result of doing that and a result of his prayer. He doesn't want anything to do with rewards. He doesn't want anything to do with idolatry. He comes, he does what God commands him, and then he's going to head back straight away. But as he returns from Bethel, 
to get to, back to Judah, the man of God meets this old prophet. And the old prophet had heard about the events in Bethel uh, from his sons who had probably been at the altar at the time and uh, related the story to their father. And the old prophet wants to catch the, the man of God uh, on his way before he gets out of reach back to Judah. And so the old prophet meets the man of God by a tree. He's resting. And he invites the man of God to go back to his house for some food and something to eat. That sounds innocent enough. There's nothing wrong with that. Good to offer hospitality, isn't it? And I encourage you to do so. But in this story, um, it's, it's an innocent enough uh, request, but we know from verse 8 that this man of God has been told not to eat or drink on his way back to Judah. So you have to do your work, proclaim the truth, proclaim the word of the Lord, and then just get straight back to Judah. Don't stop. And, you know, the man of God remembers that and tells the old prophet what God has said to him. So that's twice now this man of God has said both to Jeroboam and now to the, the old prophet, I can't eat with you. I've got to go back. Now something strange happens. The old prophet declares in verse 18, I also am a prophet. As you are, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into the house, that he may eat bread and drink water. That sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? The young prophet, the young man of God, here's this old prophet, declaring that he has heard from God himself, and uh, he should come and eat with him. Well, here's a conundrum, isn't it? God has already told me not to go, not to eat. But now this man of God is telling me God has told me to eat, or to come with him to eat. What shall I do? Shall I listen to what God has told me previously? Or shall I listen to this old prophet? Well, the narrator tells us what's going on here. The old prophet lied. It was just a straight lie. But it put the young man in a conundrum. And then for some inexplicable reason, he listened to the old prophet and went back to the house for some food. And then at that point, God truly does come to the old prophet and gives a word of judgment against the, the young man, the man of God. And the word of judgment is against his act of disobedience. It sounds like a simple thing, just eating food, but it is an act of disobedience. And the word of judgment comes. And the word of judgment comes true because as soon as he leaves to go on his way, he is killed by a lion. And his body is at the side of the road. Now the point here is to point out how easy it is to abandon the word of God easily. To be swayed by claims by such as an old prophet. But you know, 
appeals to authority to listen to those sources of authority, supposed authority in favour of listening to God. I've lost count of the... There's something very modern about this as well. Um, I've lost count of the number of times uh, professing Christians I have known who at one time seemed rock solid spiritually, who you could never believe could ever have budged from their faithful service to the Lord Jesus Christ, only to find that out of the blue suddenly something happens in their life and suddenly they're nowhere spiritually. I've got so many people in my experience I've met like that. And it seems inexplicable at the time. How could they have abandoned all that they once believed and professed? So that's one way it can happen. But there's something even more subtle here. And and it's an equally modern thing. Because, as you'll know, I'm sure you'll know, the church is awash with people claiming that God has spoken to them about something. Oh, God has spoken to me to tell you this, and some message or other. Not through reading the Bible, but through some other experience, a voice or a dream or a vision or something, whatever. Anything but the Bible. And the church is awash with people doing that, saying, God has said, God has said, God told me this, God told me that. And young Christians are confused. Because instead of being faithful to the word of God... They start listening to these so-called prophets speaking from their imaginations. It's so dangerous, this. It's so dangerous. And actually, it's quite manipulative. That's what the old prophet was being. He's being manipulative. He was saying, I'm a prophet like you are. Listen to me. I've got the word of God as well. God has said to me, You must come with me. And he lied. And he lied claiming divine authority. So dangerous. What ends up happening in those circumstances is people abandoning the word of God for the sake of the word of someone else. And that never ends well. Friends, the lesson for all, this is a lesson for all Christians of the need to grow in wisdom. That as we study the Word of God, as we read the Word of God, as we begin to make the connections, as we begin to understand how God works and how God speaks, and to become rooted in the Word of God so that it shapes our thinking, uh, we grow in the wisdom of God and we're able to discern when people are telling lies. Not telling the truth. We need the wisdom of God, don't we? To be able to discern when we're straying from the word of God. Because the difficulties come not in the major issues of life, but often in the subtle dilemmas that we face every day. What is God saying to me in this situation? Well... How easy it is to abandon the word of God if you don't have wisdom. But here's the last section of the story. The last character of the story is the the old prophet. And here we need to observe how it's possible to abuse the word of God cynically. 
how it's possible to abuse the word of God cynically. Look back to verse 18. We've read it already. Uh, And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. There's a great big, big, big contradiction in this man's life. This old prophet's life. An old man, a man with apparent authority of age and apparent wisdom. Who can go and speak the words of the Lord and yet at the heart of it is a lie. He uses lies to get what he wants. He's a man who could at the same time could speak accurately the words of God. Because later he gets a revelation from God which he communicates to this man. A a word of judgment. And that is a true word. So here's a man who in one moment can speak a lie and in another moment can speak the truth. And maybe that's a habit he was in. I don't know. We don't know. We just know this one instance. Maybe using his position and his reputation to say things to get people to do what he wants them to do. And many times he would speak the truth, no doubt, but was there a habit of lies coming out of his mouth as well? It does lead us to think about how we speak to people, though, doesn't it? You know, I think this is a terrifying passage for somebody like me. Because it's possible to preach in a pulpit accurately and still live a life that's a lie. I remember once um, when I was training for the ministry, one of my tutors at the theological college, who was a minister, told the story of a colleague in ministry. Um, And this colleague preached the gospel faithfully, week by week. People were converted under his ministry. He saw people become Christians under his ministry. But it turned out that his profession was a lie. That he himself did not believe what he was preaching. It's amazing the grace of God, isn't it? We can use even liars (laughs) to bring people to him. Because the words are true, even if it's said by a liar. But that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? The man who was later converted and repented of all his previous sins. And that's an extreme example. But having been around the block a few times myself as a Christian for over 40 years, it's no surprise to me that there are Christian ministers around today who while they may preach the truth from the pulpit, their lives may well be riddled with lies and contradictions. Terrifying thoughts. And because they have long since stopped being gripped by the word of God and the God of the word, they are simply going through the motions of ministry. That's an affliction that can affect any of us. To have a sound profession in public, but privately to live an unsanctified life where you're entertaining sin in your life, including even lies. 
And this is to abuse the word of God cynically. And friends, how we need the grace of God. How we need the Lord Jesus Christ to come into our lives. Because unlike Jeroboam, he is the king who is faithful in all things. Unlike the man of God, he did not give up and abandon the word of God when it became confusing. And unlike the old prophet, he always spoke the truth. His life was utterly consistent. Everything he said and everything he did were utterly consistent. He was the perfect man, the perfect savior, perfect king, the perfect prophet. And he came to save people. And that's what we need. We need him. And we need his grace and his mercy. And we need his character that he is willing to work into us as we grow in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And though we can look at these Old Testament characters and be horrified by the sin, we can also turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and see the beauty of his holiness, the beauty of his grace and mercy and love. And we pray that you make us more like him. Help us not to be hypocrites. Help us not to be those who speak one thing and do another. But Lord, help us in all things to remain faithful to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.